Well, last week we, we launched into a series or a sub-series of our look at the doctrine of worship by looking at it, who it is that we worship. And we got into the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and I told you last week that, you know, this was going to be as deep as we can go. And, and this, this is deep waters. It really has no bottom to it. And, and really, we can talk about this for eons and never really get to the bottom of the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of the Trinity. And so last week we saw that God, first of all, is a loving Father and the purposeful Creator. Well, now we're going to get into the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And as we do that, I have to warn you, we're just as deep in the water as we were last week. And so I'm like I did last week, I'm going to get rid of all of the excess and the examples and the and the baggage uh, that normally takes up time in in a sermon so that we can get down to brass tacks again and look at the beauty and the wonder of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God who is the Son. And so as we do that, there's a, a lot of stuff we're going to go to. I told you last week that Every week, every sermon in this series will launch from Ephesians chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look again at verses 14 through 21 as kind of the starting point for this sermon today. But having said that, we're going to need to go to a couple of other passages. So if you want to put your bulletin in Ephesians chapter 3 or grab a bookmark or a pen or something and put it there. You also will want to put something in John chapter 1. So while we begin, you can go ahead and flip over to John chapter 1, put a bookmark there, and then Colossians chapter 1. So John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. I'm telling you all this now so that when it comes time to flip over there, you can be ready and we won't have to wait and and wait on you to get there. So we got a lot of places to go. We're going to go all the way through the New Testament today as we look at this truth and beauty of God the Son as the second person of the Godhead. So we're swimming in deep waters and we want to fully understand this and to better understand who Jesus is. We need to start with Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 as we uh, launch from that to look at God the Son. So if you're there, look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 as we begin today. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, God's Word says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear this beautiful prayer of Paul's that we should be through the power of your spirit and the presence of your son drawn near to you so that we might be able to accomplish the purposes that you have given us in this world. Lord, we're reminded that you are our everything. You are our source for life and breath and understanding and knowledge and truth and all of the things that we need in this life. Lord, you're not just an optional uh, thing that we do once a week. You're not just an add-on to our lives like, like we, so many other things in our world. We, you, we, you aren't just a preference that we have. You are the essential component in our lives. Everything else that we do should be and is defined by you. And so, Lord, we pray that today we would see that clearly defined and uh, exemplified in your Son as we come to understand who God the Son is and know more and draw nearer to Him as we appreciate His work as prophet, priest, and king and His Word, image, and Son. So, Father, bless us now. Give us understanding that we might go from this place and be witnesses to the truth of who your son truly is. And that through that, people might come to faith in you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So to start with, there are two points that I want you to see about God the Son as we look at this passage from Ephesians 3. And this will be kind of the, the launching point for getting into the full doctrine of God the Son. So first, I want you to notice, and I pointed this out last week, that in verses 16 and 17, Paul prays to God the Father that he would give the Ephesian Christians the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ. Then you'll notice down in verse 20, he prays that God the Father will do great things through the Ephesian church because of the presence of Christ and the power of the Spirit that they already have in them. So in this, we get a, a little bit better picture of the Trinity. We get a little bit be better picture of how it is that God works in Himself to bring about His purposes in our lives. And what we find throughout the New Testament is that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, proceeds from the Father. In other words, God the Son is always doing stuff that God the Father commands. He goes out and He does what the Father commands. So for example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we're not going to turn there and read it, but it would be a great one for you to at least attempt to memorize because it's a, a beautiful statement of who Jesus really is. And in that passage, Paul tells us that God the Son is the very, uh, was in the very form of God, but yet he did not Count equality with God a thing to be grasped is the way that Paul says it. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus, in order to please the Father and in order to 
be fully obedient to the Father, gives up his right standing as truly God in the very form of God so that he might become human and dwell among us. And not only that, but he was willing to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So from this and from other places in Scripture, we find that the Son does the will of the Father. God the Father purposes something and God the Son fulfills it. God purposes our salvation and it's God the Son who redeems it. God the Father purposes creation and it's God the Son who works to make the things that God the Father purposes. The second thing that I want you to notice from Ephesians 3 is every time that Paul refers to God the Son, he calls him Christ. You might have noticed that. He prays three different times that the presence of Christ would dwell in us, or he references Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And now when we hear that, Jesus Christ, I think we've come to, we say it so much and we read it so much that we've come to identify Christ as kind of the, the last name of Jesus, right? A lot of times we even say it like that, like it's not Jesus of Nazareth, it's Jesus Christ. But actually Christ, the name or the, the word Christ is not a name at all. It's actually a title that Jesus has. In the Greek, the word Christ means king. But to the Jews, this word had so much more meaning. It didn't just mean that Jesus was a king. It meant that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, this Messiah figure held a great deal of meaning and value to the Jews. And there are hints of this figure, this Messiah figure, throughout the Old Testament. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, there's a reference to who the Messiah would be. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you remember as God is pronouncing curses on the serpent, He tells the serpent that He will crawl on His belly in verse 15. In verse 14, but then he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And when we read that, we typically read that as saying, aha, that's why women are so scared of snakes. But that's not what's meant at all by what God tells the serpent there. What he tells the serpent is one seed. In fact, the seed used there is singular and it's male. One seed of the woman will come who will crush the head of the serpent. I don't know if y'all have seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, uh, the movie that came out back in the early 2000s. Um, there was a, it's a beautiful movie. I'd highly recommend it. But in that movie, in the scene where Jesus is in the garden of the, the um, why, why am I drawing a blank on it? The, uh, uh, the garden of Gethsemane. Thank you. My wife was on it. Uh, in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying. And in the movie, a snake comes and starts to weave between his legs. And uh, he's praying and he's crying. And he's, he's got sweat drops of blood. And then he, you see Jesus in the movie, he resolves himself and he stands up and he stomps the head of the serpent and he walks off. And that is a reference back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
Jesus came to once and finally for all defeat the head of the to, to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. So this Messiah is a promised ruler who will once and for all destroy the rule of Satan. And then in Genesis chapter 40, 49, verse 10, Jacob prophesies that a king will come out of the lineage of his son, Judah. A little later on in the story of Israel, a ruddy shepherd boy named David gets a prophecy from God. Uh, David, being a li- in the lineage of Judah himself, gets a prophecy from God, a promise that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, that his throne will last forever. So the Israelites took all of these links in the chain and they wove them together to come to understand that what God all along was promising is that there would be a once and final ruler who would come, who would not just rule over Israel, but would rule over the whole world. Now, the Jews also came to understand that this Messiah took on the responsibility of three different offices. He took on the responsibility of prophet, priest, and king. Now, these are very important categories. If you're a note taker, you need to write these down. Prophet, priest, and king. So Moses prophesies in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that God will raise up a prophet one day who will teach and even represent God to the people. He will teach the people everything that they need to know about God. Now that's, if you think about it, that's kind of mind-blowing because Moses is the one who gave us the first five books of the Bible. He's the one who taught us, or taught Israel, all that they knew about God. But he admits in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen he hadn't done enough. But there will be a prophet who will come, who will teach them everything they need to know about God. God also prophesies through Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, that the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, besides just being a really hard name to say, is an ancient priest that we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. Before the Levitical laws, before the descendants of Aaron, before any of that got started, there was a priest who showed up, this mysterious priest, who shows up after a battle that Abraham had fought, and he blesses Abraham and makes the promise that God had already made to him. And so Melchizedek is this, this prototype of a priest that would come after him who would represent God to the people. And then lastly, God promises also in Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, through David himself, that there would come a king after David who would defeat all of the enemies of God and who would rule forever. So when Jesus is born, the people of Israel were ready. They were anxiously watching for the Messiah. They knew the prophecies of Daniel that the Messiah would come at any moment. They had actually figured it up to the very year or couple of years that he would come. And so they were watching with great expectation when Jesus was born. So when Joseph and Mary bring the baby Jesus into the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, there are two prophets who come, Simeon and Anna, 
And they're led by God to greet them. And they declare with great joy that this little baby is the promised Messiah who will rule over the whole world. Later on, his own disciples would come to believe that he was the Messiah. And Peter would profess in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These disciples would later on teach that Jesus met all the qualifications of the Messiah. He was a prophet. He was the king. He was the priest. And they had a way, actually three ways of talking about Jesus that kind of get at his offices as prophet, priest, and king. But it also reveals more about who Jesus really is. There are three words or three analogies that the New Testament writers use to talk about Jesus. And I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at those three analogies. Those three analogies are word, image, and son. Jesus is the word of God. He is the image of God. And he is the son of God. Just like a prophet speaks the word of God, Jesus is the true word of God. Just like uh, the priest represents God to the people, Jesus is the true image of God. And just like a king is said to be the true the son of God, Jesus is the true son of God. And so let's look at, through those passages that I told you to look up earlier, let's look at these three roles and see what they say about Jesus and his deity. First, flip with me to John chapter 1. And we'll read the first 14 verses of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So for John, when he begins his gospel, in order to tell the story of Jesus, you don't start with his birth. You have to start all the way back at the very beginning. In fact, even before the beginning, before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you have to understand that Jesus is the Word who is with God and who was God. Now, the Greek word that we have in our English Bibles for Word is actually much richer than what we can describe with just one word. So uh, what the Greek word there for word in our Bibles is logos. And we don't think much of that, but what a Jew or even a Greek would have understand from this word, logos, is what, what John is referring to 
is the divine wisdom or reason that stands behind everything. You see, the Greeks believed that behind everything was a form. You might, have, you might be a father, but you're not a perfect example of a father. Or you might be a mother, but you're not a perfect example of a mother. But a Greek believed that there was a true form of father that stood behind every father. And uh, the Jews, on the other hand, believed that the word of God, the logos, actually did things. The Word of God in the Old Testament, it is spoken by God, but yet the Word of God, we find the Word of God doing stuff by itself. So, for example, when God speaks in Genesis 1, let there be light, His Word actually does something. It makes light. And when God withholds His Word, the land withers. So, like, for example, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, y'all know this this passage, you've probably used it before. It says, My word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish everything that I send it out to do. You see there, he's saying his word is actually acting like a person to go out and do something. And so what John is saying is that the word of God isn't just spoken, it's an actual person. God's word is a real, live, working person who goes out and does the will of God. This same word, uh, John says, became flesh. Verse 14 of John chapter 1 is one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus fully embodies the Word of God. He did the Word of God, but He was also the Word of God. The second way that God the Son is revealed is as the image of God. So flip with me now to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 15 through 20 together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, another beautiful statement. And here, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the true picture or embodiment of who God is. Notice down in verse 19, he even goes so far to say that Jesus had the fullness of God. The fullness of God dwelled in him. 
Now, Paul gives us two ways that the characteristics of Jesus, uh, uh, that this characteristic of Jesus is significant. First, it means that Jesus is preeminent. He says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. And he's the firstborn or the head of the church. Now, when we read that first that word firstborn, you might say, aha, I got a handle on it now. What Paul is saying is that Jesus was the first created being. Got it. He's the firstborn of all creation. But actually, that's not what Paul means. Because firstborn in the New Testament and the Old Testament was not necessarily a, a statement of birth order. But it also was a statement of authority. The firstborn was the guy that got everything. He was the one who got the inheritance. He was the one who would be the king. He was the one who received all authority and respect. So when Jesus, when God, when, I'm sorry, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he's not speaking of his birth order. He's speaking of his preeminence. Now, just to show you that that's what he means is if you'll notice down in verse 18, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Is Jesus the firstborn of the dead? Was Jesus the first one to ever be resurrected? No, you got Old Testament examples of people being resurrected. Jesus himself caused people to be resurrected before he was ever resurrected. So he's not the first to be resurrected in the sense of order. He's the first in authority. He's the firstborn from of creation, the first of creation. He's the first of uh, uh, of the resurrection, and he's the first over the church. The other thing that Paul is pointing out here by talking about Jesus as the image is that it also refers to his role as our high priest. So Paul says down in verse 20 that Jesus, because he is the very image of God, he alone can reconcile us to God. Because he is both fully God and fully man, he is the only one who can bridge the divide between God and man. And the last way that God the Son is revealed is as the only begotten Son of God. So a little earlier, I referenced Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. In that, Peter says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, throughout the, Old, uh, throughout the New Testament, we read so many different examples of Jesus being referred to as the Son of God. And when we read that, we might tend to think, well, that's because he was formed in Mary's womb by the supernatural work of God. And that's what it means when it says that he's the son of God. But actually, that title refers to his kingship. It refers to his rule as the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, the um, judges and the kings of Israel were also called sons of God. They were said, David was said, called the son of God. And what was meant by that is because of their kingship, they had a special place, a special responsibility, and they represented God to the people as the son of God. But Jesus is so much more. He is not just a son of God in the sense 
that David was a son of God, a king of Israel. He is the true born son of God, the only begotten son of God. He is, as God would say at his baptism, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is both the king of the world that God promised and the true son of God, the true heir of heaven. So with all that said, you might be hearing all of this and you're like, well, that's all great, Nathan. I, I, I mean, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you got a chance to nerd out with us about who Jesus is and all that. But what does that have to do with anything that really matters? What does that have to do where the rubber meets the road and where, where I live my day-to-day life? What does it have to do with how I live in this world? Aren't you just simply swelling my head with knowledge and not giving me anything to live by in this world? Well, I want to give you one example of how I believe this really matters. But before I do that, let me give you two warnings okay, about this particular application. Number one, as I make this application, I want you to understand that I have a responsibility. I believe every preacher is called to preach to the sins in the camp. Now, when... I can tell you because it's a great temptation for every preacher. I would say the greatest temptation every preacher faces is to pre to tickle ears, to say things that people will like. I can say I, I know right now I can come up with five or six sermons that'll get fifteen amens during during our service this morning. I could I could say what you want to hear. I can rail easily against what goes on out there. I could tell you how terrible the world is and how we, you know, it, it, it's going to a certain place in a handbasket. I could tell, tell you all of that and you would be in total agreement with me. But my responsibility as your pastor is to preach to the things that we really deal with right. right here in this church. Now, I don't know, let me just say to start with, I don't know y'all enough to know whether this is a particular problem that you individually deal with. But I have a good expectation and uh, uh, judgment that this is probably something that you deal with or a friend of yours deals with or a family member deals with. And it's something that we're tempted to associate with, something that we're tempted to, uh, to be sympathetic to. And so I want to caution you before I begin that uh, get into this application that this may sting a little, and it's meant to sting a little. And the second warning I would give in relation to that is, when I say this, I'm not trying to tell you how you should uh, act out in society as far as how you should be involved in politics, how you should be involved, how you should vote, how you should uh, view a particular candidate or not. I'm not trying to tell you one way or the other your political view what your political view should be. In fact, the point I'm making is the exact opposite of that. But you'll be tempted when I say this to immediately dismiss me, likely, as a, a political liberal or a social liberal or whatever. So I am not saying this to cause you to be angry 
at me or angry at some political leader or something like that. I'm saying this so that you will repent if this is something that you wrestle with. So, with all that said, now you're on your, you're ready to pounce, right? Uh, let me get into a way that I believe this really matters. I recently got, had the opportunity to listen to a documentary series called The Rabbit Hole. And there, this series take, took a deep dive look at uh, how these conspiracy theories and extremist groups end up developing through what seems like benign mediums like social media or YouTube. In fact, the reason it's called rabbit hole is because I don't know if you've ever used YouTube, but when you use YouTube, you know, you watch the video and then it suggests another video for you. And if you're not careful, you can spend 15 hours watching YouTube videos because you just go from one to the next to the next. And how that particular feature can end up leading you to listen, to, to be in a bubble and to listen to only a certain group of people. One of the conspiracies that the documentary traced was the QAnon conspiracy. Now, you might have heard of this. It's all over the news right now because of the Capitol riots and, and all of that. And, uh, and it's been uh, had the full media attention here lately. QAnon, though, actually started all the way back in 2015. And I want to go through a little bit of the detail about QAnon just to show you how these things develop and make a point off of that. QAnon started back in 2015, if you remember, when the emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign were leaked to the public. And while a lot of us might have just shrugged our shoulders and gone on with life and not thought much about it, there was a particular group of people that sat down and they started going through the emails of Hillary Clinton trying to come up with some sort of pattern of malfeasance or something like that that they could use for political gain. Well, these people ended up developing a pattern based on the fact that the Hillary Clinton campaign ate a lot of pizza. And they found that there was a particular pizza joint that they always went to. And out of this came a conspiracy that you might have heard of called Pizzagate. It's a weird thing to call it. But anyway, the, the Pizzagate. And in, people became believe, began to believe that the word pizza was a code word for child sex trafficking. And so every time the Hillary Clinton campaign referenced pizza, they were actually using a code word to say that they were going to drop off children at the basement of this particular pizza joint and that this this was something that was known in the group well it became a very real life situation when one man got so upset by this conspiracy that he went to the actual pizza joint and he held it up at gunpoint and when the police came he told them i was just trying to set the children free they're down in the basement you need to go get them and set them free the only problem is the police tried to do that, but the pizza joint didn't have a basement. And so it was, it was, there was nothing to it. There was no there, there. And then a little later in 2017, President Trump had a Oval Office meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And in that, he made a statement in which he said that this meeting could be the calm before the storm. 
Now, what he was referring to was North Korea. That was the reason he was meeting at the time. But right after that, a mysterious character named Q, which is where the QAnon comes from, uh, Q posted on an obscure social media platform that he was an insider in the White House who had secret information about what President Trump really meant. And what he really meant was that all those conspiracies about child sex, sex trafficking, they were actually true, that it was worse than that, actually. And when Trump said that there was a storm coming, it meant that he was about to expose everything. So Q would release these statements every once in a while, and they were very cryptic statements, and people would just eat it up, and they would sit down and try to figure out what exactly Q meant. People would try to decipher every little detail, and not only that, but they would watch a Trump rally or a Trump speech or something like that, and they would look at what he was wearing and which side his lapel pin was on and how many flags he had behind him. And through that, they would try to decipher what Trump really meant by his speeches. Now, what's so strange about this is that QAnon, the folks that follow QAnon, hold that everyone is completely distrustful. They have a complete distrust distrust for everyone, for politicians, for the news media, for government bureaucrats, for religious leaders. And yet, with all that distrust, they waited with bated breath for every cryptic word from a person they didn't even know. Nobody even knows who Q is. And yet, they ate it up. They wanted a prophet who would reveal the truth about the world. They wanted a priest who would drive out the corrupt religious leaders and politicians. They wanted a king who would once and for all bring justice and peace. As crazy as these conspiracy theories might seem, we all have a deep longing for a true prophet, a true priest, a true king who will speak the very word of God, who will rightly represent God and who will rule over our lives as the true son of God. And we all look for these things in worldly men who cannot give us this and will ultimately let us down. We all, every one, every one of us, get all excited every four years about the next guy. I remember back in 2008 when uh, it disturbed the, the mess out of me that uh, Barack Obama had this group of school children that sang this hymn to him as if he was the great deliverer who would deliver us from the bondage of Bush. Or you had... Uh, In 2015, you had all these prophecies made, literal prophecies about who Trump is and what he would do. And people calling him the great deliverer or the anointed one and things like that. And you have today the exact same thing happening with Joe Biden, where people are like, he's the one that's going to set things right. He's going to bring normalcy to the White House. He's going to be the one to finally set us free of all of our bondage. And we look at these men and in in the place of Jesus, we put them. And we say that they're the ones that will really deliver us from our needs. And you know what it is? It's us taking our earrings off 
melting them down and making a golden calf. That's what it is. We, as Christians, are called to live by a different kingdom. And because we're called to live by a different kingdom, we're called to live for a different king. Our kingdom is not of this world. We do not fight with the mechanisms and means of this world. We fight with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so, our way of changing the world is not through the power of politics, but through the power of the gospel. Our way of changing the world is by raising our children faithfully in the admonition of the world. Our way of changing this world is being faithful in our marriages, faithful in our lives, because our king says so. And because he is the right prophet. He is the right king. He is the right priest. There is no other priest who can give us the who can redeem us of our sins. There is no other prophet who can give us the true word of God. There is no other king who can rule over our lives. He, he's not found in Q. He's not found in Donald Trump and he's not found in Joe Biden. He's not found in the next celebrity pastor and he's not found in some social media superstar. He is found in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. May we this day delight in Him as the only prophet we listen to, the only priest who can give us peace, and the only King that we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,